0: your next stay. Find a stay for any of you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com Hello and welcome to the
1: podcast. I'm editor Candice Keener joined by fellow editor Katie Lambert. Hello, Candace. Hi there, Katie. I conducted some very surprising research this week.
2: Was it on Lady Lindy, Queen of the Air?
1: It was. Amelia Earhart, who I think most of us hold in our minds as an iconic figure in American history and and world history, really, of, um, of a very strong and determined and capable woman, the 16th woman in the entire world to be granted her pilot's license, in fact. And I learned that... There are some factors which may explain her disappearance that color her in a slightly different light. And that's not to say that we're not going to celebrate Amelia Earhart, because we certainly are. But I think you'll learn a thing or two, just like I did.
2: So maybe we'll start at her beginnings, which were rather humble. Um, She was a Kansas girl born in 1897. Her father was a lawyer for the railroad, um... She ended up being a nurse's aide at a military hospital in Toronto, and she was actually pre-med for a while at Columbia, which surprised me because who knew, but she was only there for a semester.
1: When she was just 10 years old, she was at a state fair when she really had her interest kindled in flying watching the planes swooping overhead and rushing past her and stirring up the wind. She realized that she wanted to do that too. And that ambition was cemented in her mind in December of 1920 when the pilot Frank Hawks invited her on his plane for a flight. And she thought, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. So she bought her first plane in 1921. It was yellow, and she named it Canary.
2: And she had flying lessons from Nita Snook, who was also one of the foremost female aviators of the day because there weren't many.
1: And uh, a critic has said that here is a, a turning point for the Amelia Earhart story, for me at least, was that Snook didn't think that Amelia was necessarily skilled enough to become a pilot. Perhaps her ambitions and enthusiasm outweighed her skill. And in some cases, that certainly compensates, and it makes up for something you're not entirely good at. But for an activity as precise as flying, of course, you need to have all of your little ducks in a row.
2: So Snook maybe thought she had the drive, but not the talent.
1: Exactly. But... That didn't stop her from trying.
2: No. And her first lesson, I like this fact, was um, 20 minutes long in Snook's World War I Canuck. Um, and she charged her 75 cents per minute. Snook's Canuck. You really can't <laughs> make this stuff Canuck.
1: up. <laughs> yeah. Yet early in her career, she established her prowess in the sky by setting records for speed and altitude. And she became very slowly, but surely a huge celebrity in the aviation
2: world. In 1928, she was the first female passenger on the Fokker Friendship. They flew from Newfoundland to Wales. And it was a big deal because a publicist named George Putnam was the one who'd set her up for this. And originally, he'd been looking for someone else, but that woman ended up not being able to take her place, and Amelia was totally gung-ho to go for this trip. And also in 1928, it was a big year for her. She was the first woman to make a solo return transcontinental flight.
1: And as far as her position on the the friendship flight with Wilmer Stoltz and Slim Gordon, for them it was old hat, this type of transatlantic voyage, but... Putnam was a publicist as much as a publisher, and he was trying to put a new spin on it. It was the first time that a woman was on board, and she was given the title commander to lend her a sense of prestige. But Amelia was always very clear and very adamant about the fact that she didn't do anything on this flight. She was merely there for company. And one could guess, too, that she was watching and observing and learning what exactly people do to conduct themselves on these long flights. And Later, when she would do solo trips, she would remark that the company she kept were the celestial bodies in the sky, and it was some of the most beautiful things she'd ever seen. And I think she also felt a little bit guilty about
2: getting so famous for something where she wasn't really doing anything and that right. gave her the urge to prove herself.
1: Exactly. And not only the urge, it also gave her a bunch of endorsement deals because she needed money to continue on with her flight career. <laughs> Lucky strikes cigarettes for one. <laughs> for one. Uh in nineteen twenty nine, she went on to add another impressive feat to her resume, and that was helping to organize the woman's air derby and becoming a founding member in And president of the 99s. And the 99s was a women's aviation group. And this was sort of a a post-suffrage effort to get women to organize and explore their other interests. And as women were gaining ground in the aviation industry, they found they didn't have a lot of support from their male cohorts. It was seen as, it was seen as a, a men's world and they wanted in. And so by offering each other support and sharing industry news, they could better gain ground, get a better foothold. And one of my favorite things that the 99s did, and I should mention, too, that the name 99s was Amelia's idea because when they put out a, a call for interested parties, 99 women answered. Anyway, they uh, campaigned to overturn the government proposal that would ban women from flying when they were menstruating. Fair enough, 99. Yes, yeah, so and I'm just going to leave it at that. Just a, a fun <laughs> historical fact for everyone. They're still around, for the record. I think they they have more
2: than 5,000 members today. And they note on their website that most women who've achieved great things in aviation have been a member of the 99s.
1: So during this time, with her involvement with the 99s and her speaking engagements, she was also writing for Cosmopolitan Magazine Mm -hmm. and for other publications. And she was actually the aviation editor or aviation writer for Cosmo. And I'm... I don't think we have that no, anymore. No, I don't think so. I think it was a much different uh, iteration of the magazine back in that day. But in 1935, she was appointed to a consulting position at Purdue University. More women were starting to have careers of their own, and she became an advisor to them, which I think is really significant. And it's interesting to note that despite her own ambitions, Amelia Earhart was also an approachable and disarming enough woman that other young women would feel comfortable seeking her counsel. I think that speaks a lot about her character. And at this point, I
2: think, too, she was also a bit of a style icon. And I know we always like fashion throughout history, but she had the leather jackets and close-cropped hair, um, silk
1: ties and scarves, and people thought she was she was sassy. She was. You can see pictures on the official Amelia Earhart Museum website and plenty of other fan websites out there of her wearing her her tight-fitting pants and her boots and the scarf tied around her neck. She was really, really classy. I think she even had a clothing line. I know she had a luggage
2: line. Wow, I did not know that. Um But in the meantime, even before Purdue, in 1932, she was the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic. She landed in Ireland, and I think that's when she finally felt like, yeah, she'd really done something. And she also got the Distinguished Flying Cross that year.
1: And she was also recognized by President Herbert Hoover with the National Geographic Society gold medal. So attention and awards and praise is being showered upon her. And she's nearing her 40th birthday. And at this time, she's actually married to George Putnam, the... Rejected him six times, for the record,
2: (laughs) before they ever got married.
1: We should note, too, that he was actually married when they began touring together and helping to endorse her career together. But he was granted divorce in 1929. So by 31, he and Amelia were an item. And he wrote
2: her a very interesting, she wrote him, excuse me, a very interesting letter where she said, I shall not hold you to any medieval code of faithfulness. Um, to me, nor shall I consider myself bound to you similarly. And then went on to say that if she thought they were honest, they could avoid any difficulties if one or the other of them became too attracted to someone else. So mm-hmm. she knew what she was getting into. She did.
1: And she called the marriage a partnership with dual control and kept her own name. She did. And George recognized that for her to keep her celebrity index high, she needed another big flying stunt. And nearing her 40th birthday, she was ready to become the first woman to fly solo around the world. And flying solo around the world had already been accomplished by Charles Lindbergh, But she wanted to show that a woman could do it, too. And as a matter of fact, she chose a course that wrapped as tightly around the equator as possible, which extended the journey just a bit. And also took it through some more uh, difficult terrain. The Pacific Islands, in particular, as we'll soon learn, were quite challenging to navigate. So she started in 1937 on this trip and
2: flew from California to Hawaii, but a tire blew when they landed in Hawaii, which sort of put their plans on hold for a little bit. The plane had to be shipped back to California to
1: be fixed. And we should mention that this plane was the Lockheed Electra. She'd formerly used a Lockheed Vega, but the Electra was better suited for long-distance flying. And she'd been flying in the Lockheed Vega, but switched to the Lockheed Electra, which is better suited for long-distance flying.
2: They had to restart her journey in Miami. They decided instead they'd just go the totally other way this time, since they'd already publicized it.
1: Well, and, and plus the winds were more favorable in the opposite direction. Exactly. But they didn't want
2: anyone to know that they were actually having to fly their repaired plane from California to Miami. So they just didn't make any announcements on that
1: right. one. And looking back now with a historian's eye, you know, you could say it was, it was a prophetic bad start and that you know, this maybe was one clue because there are some sources that say that it was her handling of the plane that caused it to scrape its belly across the runway and to to crash. And even though there wasn't a fire, it was very badly damaged. Perhaps it was nerves. I don't know. But she also had on board uh, a man who, again, some critics say was not the best navigation advisor. This was Frederick Noonan, and he'd formerly worked with Pacific Flight Navigation, but had reportedly been let go from his previous job for being a little bit too drunk at work sometimes. Again, some of this is based on historical hearsay, but a lot of historical sources do say that his method of navigation, which was to use celestial positioning, couldn't be relied upon entirely for an around-the-world flight. Imagine using... Just the heavens and the sky to guide you. Well, what do you do when it's cloudy? Exactly. And as you'll see,
2: that was a big downfall. And so, pictures, we're back in Miami. We've got, we should be feeling a little bit nervous at this point with that background. And we've already had an accident on the trip. We've got Fred Noonan, who we're not entirely sure about. And they take off and eventually end up in New Guinea on June 29th.
1: And we should note that despite these ominous factors, they'd been doing swingly. I mean, absolutely great. This was a trip that was going to be about 29,000 miles, and they only had 7,000 left to go. They'd knocked out a substantial amount of the mileage. I mean, we're talking about uh, crossing over South America and Africa and India and Asia, Australia. And it was very carefully charted as to where they would stop and refuel. And their next stop was Howland Island, Howland Island, which is more than, I think, 2,500
2: miles away from where they were.
1: And Helen Island is more of an atoll than an island. It's, it's teeny tiny. It's teeny tiny. Uh, it's about a mile and a half long, a half mile across. And she wasn't even going to be able to uh, get to the island exactly without the help of the U.S. Coast Guard. So she had plans to meet this U.S. Coast Guard cutter named the Atasca nearby, who would help give her exact coordinates and refuel her and allow her to rest for a while. So
2: they take off on July 2nd for the Howland Island, and that's when things start to go terribly, horribly wrong. The last positive sighting of them was over the Nukumanu Islands by the Itasca.
1: And the Itasca was attempting to communicate with Amelia and Frederick with a two-way radio. Amelia didn't know Morse code. She wasn't comfortable using it. And furthermore, she didn't necessarily
2: have all the equipment that she did need. She had an antenna and she had radio equipment that operated on a certain frequency, but the frequency she was using wasn't the same one necessarily that the Coast Guard was using. And even when they did get on the right frequency, they didn't seem to be getting each other's messages. She couldn't hear them. And her last message to them, I think... um, or what's usually recorded as the last message, said, we must be on you but cannot see you, but gas is running low, have been unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at a 1,000 feet.
1: And the Coast Guard couldn't get her to switch to Morse code, which they preferred to communicate. It was much more exact because, like you said, she didn't have the capability to get the messages. She didn't have the right equipment. So essentially the two parties are incommunicado at this point conditions are incredibly overcast so noonan isn't able to help guide them and then nothing absolute nothing we're we're not quite sure what happened but of course you know the united states went into a bit of a panic because here was their aviation darling gone uh, either drowned at sea or washed up on some remote beach and there was a very, very extensive rescue attempt undertaken. The biggest one yet at that time. Yeah, $4 million and it covered about 250,000 square miles in ocean. And it was called off in July 1937. And here's the real kicker for me. This is so interesting because Amelia Earhart was officially declared dead on January 5th, 1939. And Noonan was declared dead in June of 1938.
2: <laughs> they didn't want to give up hope on they Amelia. They didn't. <laughs>
1: right. They really didn't want to let her go. And she Putnam was the golden girl. Exactly. Right. And, and Putnam, too. I mean, that was his wife out there. And she'd written to him before she even left on this monumental voyage, Please know I am quite aware of the hazards. I want to do it because I want to do it. Women must try to do things as men have tried. When they fail, their failure must be but a challenge to others. So that brings us to what exactly did happen to Amelia Earhart. And there are several theories out there, and some of them are are much more conspiracy theory-like than based in some sort of evidentiary fact. And we're going to cover as many as we can, as many as we were able to happen upon, uh, no pun intended there. Uh, One of the most famous is probably that she was captured by the Japanese and that she was taken to Saipan and put to death. And that she was actually a
2: spy for the Japanese, actually. That was quite a common rumor at the time, because you have to remember, to put it in context, that this is when there's very much a policy of isolationism and people not wanting the United States to get involved in World War II. So there was a lot of controversy over that and the idea that she was flying halfway across the world. Well, maybe she was spying.
1: And some have even gone as far as to say that she was captured by the Japanese and she became Tokyo Rose. Isn't that interesting? And her husband George listened to recordings of Tokyo Rose and said that the voice was not Amelia's. And one of the other
2: theories um, was that she survived the crash; she and Noonan both, and just went to live on one of the islands until they starved to death. Which
1: it's very sad to think about, but <laughs> I suppose it, it is, it it is likely. more possible than becoming Tokyo Rose, right? Precisely. Other reports say that she was living in a disguised type of retirement after all of these supposed missions for the government or else trying to find a, a graceful way to back out of this very celebrated career. And she was either in Chicago or she was in New York under the pseudonym Irene Bolum. And this name is significant. It was supposed to represent, I believe, the latitude and longitude. Where she was supposed to land up. Of of the name of a beach where she was supposed to have landed. I don't even quite understand how that (laughs) works. But um poor Irene Bolum, she swore up and down, no, I am not Amelia Earhart. And sued them eventually. Right. There were publishers who put together a book based on this theory and Bolum was having no part of it. And a lot of people thought, in
2: general, that it was a staged accident, that that was her point all along, and it was, you know, her way out of that way of life.
1: Right. And so her sister actually stated, uh, this is Muriel Earhart Morrissey, that she inquired directly to the Japanese government, do you have my sister? And the answer was a very strong, no, we don't. And she held the belief that The plane just simply ran out of fuel and it crashed into the bottom of the ocean. And that's the most
2: accepted theory now, the the crash and sink theory, I believe they call it, which is pretty self-explanatory.
1: Right. And it is believable to think that her plane crashed and that a $4 million search effort at the time could not recover the wreckage. Because in order to find the wreckage, they would have had to have searched about 17,000 feet deep in the ocean and keep in mind, if she's around the Pacific Islands, there would have been debris from other ships from World War II. So in order to identify Amelia Earhart's plane, not only would wreckage have to be located, but search crews would have had to have found the exact serial number that matched her plane. Exactly. And That's search, really
2: hard. search and rescue efforts at the time were very... They weren't based on as much science as we have now. I mean, you'd have to be thinking about stuff like... Currents and the weather conditions at the time. And to be fair, they weren't even entirely sure where she was going. They think she got knocked off course um, by a few, by several miles actually. But who knows? They just had that last radio transmission. So there were several hours between then and probably when she crashed.
1: There are two interesting academic theories that I wanted to discuss because both of them come with a lot of evidentiary support. And they're pretty interesting, and and they suggest that the plane went down in in different locations. And the first is from the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, who thinks that after she couldn't get in touch with the Itasca, she turned her plane southeast and flew toward Gardner Island. And this is a considerably larger tract of land, and it's pretty topographically distinct. There's a large lagoon in the middle and an interesting landmark, too, a wrecked freighter. So she could have seen this island. And thought maybe that was the Itasca. Well, there you go. And and there was plenty of room to land. So she could have brought her plane safely down on the beach. And if the plane went down on the beach and she and Noonan walked inland just a little bit, it would explain some strange radio messages that were picked up that came at hours intervals of each other. And it was a voice that sounded similar to Amelia's trying to help give some... Uh, geographical bearings and trying to give some direction as to where she could be found. And if they came hours apart, that might be because as the tide came in on Gardner Island, the plane Uh would get covered by water, and in order to power the radio from the plane's right engine, she had to wait for the tide to go out. Which makes perfect sense, I think, and it's a really interesting theory. It does. And a search of the island in 1938 turned up airplane debris, a skeleton a woman's shoe and the skeleton was examined and at first it was identified as uh, an older Polynesian man. <laughs> no, not Amelia. no but then another inquiry said that it was probably a European man. and then the skeleton was lost, but an examination of the notes in 1988 said that it was actually a, a tallish woman of European descent, somewhere between about five foot five, five foot nine. That actually could have been been Amelia. And then other searches turned up cigarette lighters, which Noonan smoked, so it could have been his, a man's shoe, and plexiglass debris that matched Earhart's plane's windows. You have to wonder what happened to that skeleton. I know. I know. Well, and this information seems pretty convincing. So I was pretty much sold on Gardner Island. And then I read about. (laughs) Until. Until (laughs) I read about this other theory which is that in 1945, Australian soldiers on the island of New Britain were tracing through the jungle, and they found wreckage of a plane. And it was practically overgrown by all the foliage. It was so dense, they could barely get to it. But they managed to get uh, a, a piece of the plane, and a map that they found near it, which had some numbers written on it, 600 HP, S3H1, CN1055. And these numbers actually correspond to the construction, horsepower, and number of engines on Earhart's plane. So which theory is more convincing? I don't know. I don't want to make a judgment. I'm not here to analyze. I'm here to offer the facts. Because
2: we don't know the answer, and that's the cool thing. There are all these fascinating loose ends that may never actually
1: be solved for us. It's a historical mystery for sure, but also it's it's nice to remember Amelia, not just for her disappearance, which has certainly spawned a number of salacious conspiracy theories, but for the fact that she was a very important figure in early feminist movements. Her beliefs about women being capable of great feats and being able to try and accomplish and even do better things that men had done first, these are still relevant concerns.
2: And one of my favorite quotes from her, it's pretty simple, but to me it pretty much sums up Amelia Earhart, was that flying may not be all plane sailing, but the fun of it is worth the price. And she was never walking into any of these flights thinking that it would all be fine. You know, she she knew it was dangerous when she undertook that last flight. She knew it was dangerous when she undertook her other flights. She'd even crashed a plane before, I believe, with Nita Snook but she wanted to do it anyways because it was worth it.
1: To her, exactly. And I think that's important advice to live by, for sure. And if you want to learn more about Amelia Earhart and the history of flight, be sure to check out the website at HowStuffWorks.com. For
0: more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. This is Raquel Willis
2: from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country.